um, attorneys with escrow accounts and trust funds, um, they're going to, of course, claim that they have a privilege and you can't go in there and look at their funds. How do you get around that? It's actually not privileged. Good, uh, tell me that y- again. Yeah, no. Uh, tr- yeah, just <laughs> my, my, my billing records, well, I don't want the world to see them. If the, someone with the right authority comes in and asks for them, i got to produce them. They're not privileged. If there's communications contained within uh, the billing records, that is going to be privileged. Because you got to remember, the attorney-client privilege is going to apply to confidential communications and furtherance of legal advice. So it's hard to argue about a billing or a bill or even the name of a client being a confidential communication. Wow. It, it's, it's a battle that when I was a prosecutor, we took on a few times in order to get some, some, some information. As a defense lawyer, we, we obviously protect against the privilege and make sure that our clients who... I, I need a client to rely on that privilege. If, if someone can't sit in the chair across from me and, and be open and frank and complete and tell me everything that they can with the belief that what they're providing me and telling me is going to be kept in confidence, I'm not able to give that advice. I'm not able to give them complete advice. So, so, so the attorney-client privilege, essential, important, necessary, should only be encringed and, and, and come under attack in absolute necessary ways uh, and... and I think that's an important point to make. Very important. Can you actually tell our listeners about the areas of occupational fraud schemes? Like, for example, asset misappropriation, financial statement fraud. Can you just give them a little clarification that there are different kinds like of fraud schemes? Like, you know, there's financial statement fraud versus actually taking the assets and moving them to a different company. Yeah, yeah of course. Um, look, the, for, like we said before, fraud comes in all shapes and sizes. If you are transferring money from company A to company B without the authority to do so, and company A has, has a liability that's out there, there, there's all sorts of fraudulent conveyances or there may be some fraud that's going on there. Um, I, I, I think that uh, the more... The more sophisticated the fraud, the harder it is to detect, obviously, and, and uh, yeah. And also, you know, you do tax uh, work as well. No, that's okay. You're doing great. Um, I'm glad I'm over here asking the questions. <laughs> <laughs> Um, on the tax side, um, if you have companies, say, they do these Ponzi schemes, they would set up shell companies that you mentioned before, and they file different tax returns. I mean, without um, an investigation going into company A, they may get away with it. And so is that where the whistleblowers may come in? Well, look, having someone from the inside is always important from the government standpoint, whether it's a former bookkeeper, or ex-wife, a disgruntled business partner, whatever it may be, who can provide true insight as to how a company was run and how it's structured. Um, and, and how the finances work are always critical to the government in, 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 in un- unwinding a, a fraud of some sort. Um, remind me what the first part of the question was because I know I just attacked No, it's just part. about tax. It was oh. just like from the IRS standpoint, like, you know, just tax returns themselves, I mean, can be indicative to someone else's company and their flow downs and so on. No, for sure. And look, it's it's hard... Um, unless there's litigation pending to get someone else's tax returns. They, when you when you file that return, it goes into a vault, that vault being the IRS. And the IRS has really strict privacy controls uh, governed by uh, Internal Revenue Code Section 6103, not to get too technical here. But, get technical. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but, but 6103 basically says, IRS, you cannot disclose any information that's provided to you by a taxpayer absent a few uh, exceptions, and those exceptions are, are, are really limited. Primarily, they're, they're, they're there for like, other government agencies who know that a crime has been committed. Then they, have to even, they can't just call the IRS and say, give us the records. They actually have to go to a United States district court, get permission, get an order, 
allowing the IRS to disclose the information. Okay. So, so the IRS, um, if there's litigation pending, you can subpoena the accountants, you can subpoena uh, the, the, the opposing party and say produce your tax returns. Different story. But actually getting information from the IRS, really, really difficult. Wow. Eddie, you have a question? Yeah, I actually have a two-part question. Oh, good. <laughs> a and B, okay. Well, I'm glad it's not three or four. <laughs> no, just a short two-part question. Have you found that perpetrators of fraud have common characteristics, behaviors, or traits? And do you find that more often than not that collusion has an especially higher harmful effect than acts of fraud committed by a solo perpetrator? Uh, yeah, no, look. I, I, I think those who commit fraud really come from those who are highly educated to the uneducated, to, to, to those who are rich, to those who are poor. Uh, motivating factors there, I, like I mentioned before, generally it's, it's greed. It's greed, greed, greed. And so look, sometimes, a lot of these folks, they, they also, I think it's not always as black and white as we all make it also. A lot of people... Bad make bad business. There's a bad business decision. Sometimes you think you're engaging in a financial transaction. You think everything's been declared or disclosed appropriately. You think what everything is, is, is all your eyes are dotted and your T's are crossed. Maybe you've talked to a lawyer. Maybe you've uh, worked through some issues. That doesn't mean that you committed fraud if it blows up. I think a lot of what we see these days is, is is a rush to judgment that someone from the outset intended to do something wrong. And, and, and look. There obviously are cases where that where that happens, but I think a lot of times, especially where the more sophisticated um, financial crime is alleged, you you have that 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 really bad business decision. And I used to say as a prosecutor, I didn't want to be in the business of prosecuting bad business decisions. I think oftentimes the government tries to stretch a fact or manipulate a fact to turn it into the intentional wrongdoing. But 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 as far as uh, general characteristics, I think they come uh, really in, in, in all shapes and sizes. I've seen it from the, uh, the grandmother, uh, believe it or not, all the way down to the, the teenager, from the rich to the poor, like I said. Um, and, and as far as like uh, groups of folks who are committing fraud, um, obviously the more sophisticated the organization, the more, I guess... Uh, Harmful the, the the fraud could be, but one individual, as we we we've seen, like the Madoff case, which we've only seen a handful of people who've been prosecuted there, but 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 that's generally a single person with a few people around them, at least publicly, is what we've seen committing a massive fraud. So so I, I really think that the the sky's the limits when it comes to determining a lot of uh, the characteristics and, and the effects on folks. So it's like an ethical. Uh, value there too with humans and you know they have to kind of breathe and say this is my ethical compass here and you have to deal with that yeah yeah but 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 i really think that the the especially in the white collar world which is what what uh, what I, where i live when i say i live it's, it's, where, it's where i work and where i practice it i think you ha- you, ha- you have folks who fi- who find themselves in, in in difficult situations who who maybe were misunderstood who who who, who maybe made the mistake um, and and what the government's going to have to come in and show is the lies the deceit the trickery because once you start showing that somebody was lying and and and, and and deceitful, uh, it's a lot more difficult to say that they just made a mistake or, 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 or were misunderstood. And, and back when I, I, I specialized when I was a prosecutor with, with tax prosecutions, and a lot of my practice now is dealing with complicated IRS issues, cr- whether it's criminal tax defense or, or, or that audit that just 
has the the, the, the the issues that make the hair on the back of your neck stand straight up because you're, you're a little nervous and you get that letter from the IRS, it's never a good thing. But you have those those restless nights. I I I, I, I just think though that that so much of um, <laughs> and I, I kind of lost my train of thought there for a second. But 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 I think so much of of what we we, we see with these days is just the government coming in and 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 jumping to the conclusion that it's already there. We have Ahmed from Miami. Hi. Morning. How are you? Fine, fine. Do you find that since you have gone into private practice that judges treat you differently when you defend those charged with crimes as opposed to prosecuting them? Yeah, that's. <laughs> you have a, I have a big smile on my face. I, I, I wish you could see that because there's no doubt. I when I was a prosecutor, I almost always won. Uh, as a defense lawyer, it's it's definitely more of a challenge. I, I've had some. I did have have had some successes where I got an acquittal on my last uh, federal federal jury trial in a mortgage fraud case where we had a client who was charged with uh, an attorney who was charged with uh, misappropriating some funds, and the government was not able to show he intentionally did anything wrong, and the, and the jury came back and acquitted him, which was um, quite honestly for me a lot more rewarding to, to, to get the hug from his mother at the end of that trial um, where the government, I think, stretched its theory be, well, well beyond uh, what they should have um, that then, and hearing the words not guilty than when, than when I heard the words guilty as a prosecutor but there's no doubt, when you go in there on behalf of the United States of America and you stand up in your court and you say your name you, you, you get a certain level of respect and certain level of credibility. I think where I have an advantage over a lot of my other my, my colleagues out there who, who who do the defense work is that credibility that I have with the government kind of stays with me when, when or does stay with me as a defense lawyer and that the judges know me as a prosecutor and now they see me as a defense lawyer and it's really important for me that when I stand up in court and I, I make an argument or I say a fact that I'm able to stand by it because I want to maintain that credibility because it's going to be to my client's benefit in the law in the long run there that the judge can look at me can hear what I say. He may not agree with it completely, but at least, but but at least uh, uh, he's going to know that it's credible, and I'm not I'm not stretching too much. How do we get to you, Jeff? To give us that uh, <laughs> that give us that website because you're obviously the person that people are going to want to come to. Well, no, uh, it's janeimanlaw.com. J n e i m a n law.com. Okay, Eddie, you've got a question over here. Okay, um, what are some of the behavioral red flags displayed by perpetrators? Uh, the, 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 uh, I, I guess we look, there's usually the erratic behavior, there's the lies, there's the, 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 the kind of coming, kind of, kind of convincing themselves that there's nothing that's wrong that's happened. And again, it goes back to this intent element where maybe when the at the end of the day when there's the, the victim who's standing up and saying, I lost a million dollars. And from the get-go, you're, you're kind of like six feet deep trying to dig your way out of that hole because we know how the story ends. We just got to try and show uh, what was the intent during, during the outset here. But, but I think we... Grief and and rationalization come come go through cycles, right? I'm not a psychologist. I, I don't want to be a psychologist. But but, but they, they they talk about how admitting wrongdoing and then deal, and denying and and, 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 de- and dealing and, and the different stages here. I think you definitely see that a lot in in, in dealing with folks who find themselves in uh, in the position of being accused of, of fraud. And you mentioned before, and you brought it, and you were absolutely right on point. Was living beyond their financial means, oh. and that's just a. a 
phenomenal red flag as well as in the corporations in themselves if they have relationships say with vendors and uh, close relationships or they set up their own little shell companies and have phony bills going on. Yeah, no, my, my last case that I prosecuted when I was with the U.S. Attorney's Office down here was a father and son hotel developer. Not to tell too much of a, of a war story, but, 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 but these guys... Um, uh, worth hundreds of millions of dollars. They they had the, the, the mansions on uh, Fisher Island and on, and on Miami Beach. They had the yachts. They didn't like the traffic going over the Rickenbacker Causeway, so they literally would take a helicopter over the causeway to to, to to go to work. They lived the life that is unlike anything you you could imagine. And when they filed their tax returns, they reported thirty thousand dollars a year's income. Oh come on! What kind of like? How do you maintain a lifestyle like that with just reporting thirty thousand dollars a year of income? So, 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 so that, how did they justify that? Well, what they ju- they just justified it by saying none of it was mine, none of us, none of it was ours. They had set up these companies all over the world. They had individuals who who, who worked for them. They had a limo driver who took the stand and said, "Yeah, they t- he told me to be the owner of this company." They had a secretary who, on paper, was the owner of of part of the hotel. They had an, uh, an uncle who 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 was not a U.S. person who had $45 million in a bank account that he never knew about until he read about it in the newspaper after these guys were indicted. So, 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 so these are all kind of traits that the government's going to be looking for in order to trace back and say um, what, 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 ha- what happened here. So what was the uncle's big claim to that money? <laughs> well, the uncle didn't want to claim it was his money because then he was kind of going to be in the soup a little bit more than he wanted to be. But, but uh, the... the when I was with the government, we, we, we put the banker on the stand, and the banker said, I never met the uncle. I never spoke to the uncle. I spoke to the defendant who's sitting in this courtroom, and he told me where to put the money and how to park the money and where to invest the money and where to distribute the money. And that, that was kind of the, uh, the, the, the the whole factual determination that the jury had to determine at the end of the day is whose money was it. And speaking and of s- it, that's another great example of circumstantial evidence where we, right. we, we were able to prove circumstantially that this, the, the defendant was the one who controlled the asset. And what about the banker? You mentioned before the know your client rule, so obviously he didn't know his client, right? Well, th- it's funny because the bank was relying upon its know your client information, which changed at a critical point here, so I don't mm-hmm. want to throw the bank completely under the bus. Okay. But I, when I, I prosecuted UBS, which was the uh, largest Swiss bank um, or is the largest Swiss bank when I was with the government and we reached this settlement in 2009 where the, for the first time ever a Swiss bank turned on its clients for the first time the vaults of Swiss secrecy were opened up for the world to see which leads to transparency in a whole new wave of, of enforcement which has been going on here but but, but with, with UBS what, what was one of the key pieces of evidence that we looked at is they had these bankers who were traveling to the United States who were meeting with clients at uh, Art Basel at, at the Ericsson Sony Ericsson tennis tournament all over the, all over the country Saying, "Hey, come give us money. Come, 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 put your money overseas with us, and we promise we're Switzerland. It's safe. No one's ever going to know who you are." Well, when you looked at the actual internal bank documents, it said that the real owner of these accounts were these American people who put the money over there. Know your customer. Uh, anti-money laundering provisions worked, but when you looked at the tax forms that were in the same file. The owner of the account wasn't a U.S. person. It was a British Virgin Island corporation. It was a Panamanian corporation. It was a Liechtenstein Foundation, whatever it may be, in order to conceal the American ta- American taxpayers' beneficial ownership in the account, which would have triggered all sorts of reporting requirements. So I think you see oftentimes these banks right now who are doing these scrubs, who are looking at bank accounts and saying, wait, wait, our KYC or Know Your Customer uh, documents, they say the, the owner of the account is, is an American. But when we look at their tax forms, they're nowhere to be found. 
There's not an American in here. And, and these banks now find themselves under investigation, and the Justice Department aggressively uh, going after these banks, whether they're Israeli banks, Singapore banks, Hong Kong, Hong Kong banks, and obviously Swiss banks. Uh, there, there, there's, a, there's a big push where, where now I'm dealing with clients who have accounts all over the world who have not been in compliance for, for, for some reason or another. And, and we try and figure out how do we get you out of the situation? How do we get you to a point where, you, one, you don't have to worry about jail, which is always the number one concern. But then if we have to deal, once we get that in the rearview mirror, how do we uh, keep keep the uh, keep you, you from having to pay all the money in the world that you would have to. And since you're keeping them out of jail, what is that website? <laughs> JNeimanLaw.com. J-N-E-I-M-A-N Law.com. This sh- shameless plugging is just... Now, this is awesome. <laughs> this is exactly what we do here. <laughs> we totally are the best of boys radio. <laughs> but, Jeff, in cases that were actually referred to law enforcement, are you familiar with the results of the criminal cases? Like, for example, were most actually pled out, were most convicted at trial, acquitted? But How the, does it go? Yeah, the government loves to, like, beat its chest and say we 95% of all people charged end up convicted. And I think that that number is probably accurate, but you got to realize that's an overwhelming majority of those cases are guilty pleas. Those are cases that don't go to trial. And when the federal government, as opposed to the state government, gets involved, the federal government usually has its uh, I's dotted, its T's crossed. It's it's got its cases that are that they choose to prosecute. So they they're, they're picking the ones that they know that they're going to win. The cherries. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. So so I I I, I think the low hanging fruit, as, as as unfortunately we see sometimes, where the government doesn't want to roll up its sleeves and take on the big fight. Um, and it's part of our job to make make that big fight. But but I think of the 10%, and I don't know, the, I'm not an expert on the numbers, I don't know them all, that, but I think of the 10% of cases that actually go to trial, I would tell you the government probably wins maybe about 70, 75, 80% of those, um, which is still a very, very high conviction rate. Uh, but but um, look, when the, when when that train keeps coming from the government, it's it's tough to get out of the way, and it, it, it takes a lot of patience. Sometimes it takes a lot of resources, and sometimes it takes some luck in in, in order to, in order to get out out from underneath the the, the problem that. that I'm a face. good defense attorney, <laughs> right, Sarah? You have a question? Yeah. Um, what are the strategies that federal law enforcement uses to uh, track down these illicit financial schemes? I, I think going back to the, your question earlier about bank reporting, there, there are something called suspicious activity reports that are filed anytime someone's radar goes off in a bank. There are teams of folks, whether the multi-task or multi-agency task forces, IRS, DEA, FBI, who sit in literally they sit in a room with a federal prosecutor and they review hundreds of these suspicious activity reports and they lead to cases, they lead to prosecutions, they lead to seizures, you name it. So, so, so I think the, 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 the government's looking for um, l- looking for evidence of, of wrongdoing and, and wherever it comes from, it, it, they come in all shapes and sizes. Uh, I, I know, again, in the tax world, which is my specialty, we see a lot of times that the, 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 the tipster is the disgruntled spouse, the disgruntled business person. Um, I think that those are kind of kind of obvious, and, but, but I think that's still a fair point to make. Jeff D., can you explain to our listeners why some cases don't even get referred to law enforcement? Resources. It's resources, resources, resources. resources. The the federal government only has so many resources, uh, and and they only bring so many cases. Um, I, I, I think a lot of times it takes a victim's advocacy group 
to be screaming and pushing and the squeaky wheel always gets the oil in order to maybe get a case to the attention of an agency or to a prosecutor um, when it's a, a righteous case. And, and, and I think the, the, the U.S. Attorney's Office would probably tell you they wish they could bring cases every time there's a righteous case. They just can't. They don't have the resources to do it, especially... Uh, now, now with the budgets getting cut every which way, it's even more and more difficult for, for a lot of these cases to be brought. Do you think on the organizational side that a lot of the crimes that um, organizations find, they don't go to law enforcement either or report them because they're afraid of bad publicity? Well, I, I think organizations need to weigh the, 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 the benefits of kind of sweeping it under the rug versus going in and kind of making a mea culpa and saying, I, I made a mistake, I messed up. And you can get passes. There are programs out there that allow companies and individuals to come clean, to confess, to pay whatever fines they need to pay, to make good with the government any way they can. And in order, in, in exchange for doing so, maybe the government's not going to prosecute you. Well, uh, one of the, one of the, in fact, in some instances, they promise that they won't prosecute you. One of the guiding principles as a prosecutor has to follow are the, uh, when, when looking at corporations and entities, what to charge, how to charge, why to charge. And the biggest one, or one of the biggest ones, is how did the company react? What did the company do? Did they take the issue head on or did they kind of sit there quiet? Are they cooperating with the authorities now or not? And, and, and you see recently in the New York Times, they did this huge expose on Walmart and all sort of foreign corruption that was going on with regards to Walmart and their Mexican operations. What you saw there was Walmart, if you believe what you read in the paper, um, Walmart kind of getting evidence that there was massive corruption going on with, uh, within their business. And they did nothing. Absolutely nothing. And I think their, their, their day may come at some point when the SEC and the FBI and the Justice Department look at this and say, what did what you guys do? And they, and they lose their best argument of, we, we saw the issue, we blew the whistle, we came forward. And we worked it out. And we worked it out, exactly. Sarah? Yeah. Uh, what legislation do we have in Florida to combat fraud and money laundering? And do you personally find it to be effective? Um. <laughs> the effective question is is, is, is difficult. There, there's always going to be folks who, who are going to lie, cheat, and steal. That, that's just how it is. And I don't care how many laws we have on the book. Quite frankly, I think we probably have, we only need so many. Like they are what they are. Um, uh, there's always going to be people who are going to are going to perpetrate the crime and try and get away with it. Uh, as far as uh, specific Florida laws, the Florida Florida Department of Law Enforcement and local police, they all have and s- local state attorneys' offices. Um, they're they're all pretty aggressive in their economic crime units as far as looking at these cases. But again, it's going to come down to the resource issue. We we, we always. Um, I guess law enforcement always was going to sit and say, we need more, we need more, we need more. Jeff, similarly, um, the UN Global Report came out on trafficking in persons, and it says that the conviction rates in the U.S. are not high. Do you believe, based on all the fraud and all the other laws that are out there, that one contributing factor to low conviction rates in the U.S. is inconsistent state laws that create so many discrepancies that create potential havens for traffickers and other crimes? It, it very well could. I, I, I think from the from the f- from the law enforcement standpoint. It, it, they want to keep it as cookie cutter as they possibly can, and when they have to start having to adjust one way or the other, they're giving defense lawyers like me a lot more ammunition to, to make hay and make issues with what, with whatever uh, um, whatever there is that's out there. 
Eddie? Okay, yeah, on that note, uh, can you explain to our listeners the distinction between federal and state laws and how it can impact the prosecution of crimes of money la- of money laundering, coercion, and fraud? Yeah, no, I, I think the, um, the federal laws, I think, are a lot more stringent and a lot stricter than the state laws. I think the punishments in federal court are a lot more severe than they are in state court. I think the federal co- government, when they're involved in a case, is oftentimes going to ask the state politely, do us a favor. Get out of our way, um, uh, but but that doesn't mean that the, the, the state isn't there doing its job. Also, I think you need the federal government, you need the resources of the federal government, you need the the the, the, the uh, investigative agencies and the prosecutors of the federal government to be able to to get beyond a county line, beyond a state line, beyond a international line even, in order to get the evidence that they need to, 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 to con- connect the dots. We need a few more callers here. 888-565-1470. Whoa, okay. <laughs> because our questions are tough. Yeah, they are. Hard in, hard in. <laughs> Jeff, can you tell our listeners about Interpol's criminal database among jurisdictions and whether you believe that promoting sharing of information with other law enforcement agencies is beneficial or detrimental? Yeah. yeah. Pros and cons? Yeah. Any ideas? No, in, in, Interpol is kind of an interesting organization. They, they are uh, kind of the international connection between law enforcement agencies. If someone is charged in Germany and they're found in the U.S., that's because of Interpol generally where there's some sort of notice that's generated that they, that they look for. And, and conversely, in, in the, if you have a U.S. person who's been charged and they're, and they're found overseas, notices are sent out. People are told... Um, uh, FYI, we we we, we have it. We, we you've been, we've been notified you're you're under arrest you're, or, or something like that. So, so so Interpol huge, very important as far as cooperation among agencies. Wow, Eddie, you have a question? Yeah, I do. Um, it's been said that in the international law enforcement community, the skill sets needed to investigate human trafficking and money laundering cases are predominantly lacking. Are you in agreement with this? I, again, it, it's going to depend. It's, it's so much of it is personality driven, uh, and, and w- I, I, I joke now. When I was a prosecutor, I dealt with what was in my office. I didn't care what was going on in the office next to me. Kind of was unfair. Maybe a defense lawyer found me to be more reasonable or less reasonable than somebody else. Now I got to deal with all the prosecutors in, in, in town. It's a lot more difficult. But I, I really think it's it's such a person by person, case by case, jurisdiction by jurisdiction issue. We have Karen from Boca. Hi, Karen. Karen, you there? Yeah, hi. You have uh, a question? I'm calling regarding uh, the new or the more um, power that they have in the last half a year in regards to international uh, money, just having an account abroad, and uh, the IRS going aggressively uh, on those accounts and finding them. And I was wondering if it's the reporting that is the problem, that somebody is not reporting it, or is it something else more that they're looking at? Yeah, no, Karen, that's a, that's a fair question. I, I think it is not illegal to have an account outside the United States. No matter what people say and how people try to scare you, it is not illegal to have an account outside the United States. What is illegal or what can become a crime is if you have an account outside the United States with more than $10,000 in it that's not declared, that's not reported. There's something called a foreign bank account report or FBAR. It's got to get filed. It had to be filed by June 30th. It doesn't go with your tax return. I could do a whole three hours on FBARs. I, I travel around the country talking about FBARs and compliance issues and, and, and the fallout there. But the IRS, without a doubt, has programs in place to give people who are not compliant protection 
amnesty. They won't prosecute you. They'll take a lot of money from you, but they're not going to prosecute you. Um, and there are ways to try and minimize what they're going to take as well. That's a lot of my practice right now, which we do at www.jnimanlaw.com. Hi. If there's an account outside the United States which you have signature or other authority over with more than $10,000 at any point during the year, even if it was just for a second, it needs to be reported. We got to take the next call. Thanks, Karen. Hi, Mike. Um, we are going to take your question. We're going to take it really quickly. Go for it. Yeah, I know. Uh, question is: uh, I had a case come to our organization, Hope for Our Youth, uh, where a guy from Pompano has full custody of his child, which is uh, two and a half, maybe three now, and the ex-wife and the in-laws kidnapped the child, little girl, Gabrielle and took her to the Middle East, in Abu Dhabi. Charges have been brought forth through Interpol. Warrants are out for these people, and it's gone on two years now. Yeah, Mike, Mike, I wish I could tell you that the uh, government moves fast. They don't, always. Uh, so I would let it take its course. we got to cut you off because we're out of time, but feel, yeah. free, feel free to call after hours, and we'll, we'll try our best to help you there. Yeah, now, before we do anything and before we disappear on you, tell us exactly where to reach you, Jeff. Yeah, my offices are in Fort Lauderdale across from the federal courthouse, 954-462-1200, 954-462-1200, Iman, J-E-N-E-I-M-A-N, law.com. Eddie? Okay. Your Best Voice Radio show is here every Wednesday from noon to 1 p.m., bringing you up to date on this issue and to keep you abreast of what's needed to work together to secure victim safety while pursuing and prosecuting the traffickers. Our Best Stop Trafficking hotline is 888-BEST-811. So if you're a victim or you know of a victim, please call our hotline. If you would like to hear about a specific topic or if you would like to suggest a guest for the show or sponsor the show or volunteer, please go to www.beststoptrafficking.org and fill in the contact form. You can make donations to Best directly on the, st- on the site as well. All major credit cards are accepted. Sarah? And be sure to like Building Empowerment by Stopping Trafficking on Facebook to keep yourself up to date on the fight against sex trafficking. Do you love Best Voice? Check our page every week to find out who our guests will be. Also, look out for our upcoming Facebook fundraiser so you can win some of the best prizes. That's www.facebook.com slash Trafficking. This is Linda Sullivan thanking Jeff Nyman to jo- for joining us. And we are here, and I'm our co-founder and our president of Best Stop Trafficking. 